Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What's cracking, y'all? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles, and we are continuing along our journey of theology of the body. Um, and uh, y'all, <laughs> uh, there's just so much I want to talk about, and I just can't talk about all of it. So, for those who've been journeying with us in this, in this, throughout this mini series, like I've said a few times now, uh, Go to like the TOB Institute in Philadelphia um, or, or just buy the text itself if you want to read more of it because um, I'm having to skip, I mean, just a boatload of material, y'all. Uh, just for the sake of, of time, um, I knew this miniseries was going to take me, uh, you know, a few weeks to say the least. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to get through it. You know, we're, uh, we are, as of this episode today, we are just over halfway through Theology of the Body, which is like crazy because we've been talking about it for like a long time now. Um, so I'm saying that in, in basically in short to know that I'm going to start making kind of bigger leaps, bigger jumps uh, through the text. And I'm so sorry if that upsets you. Um, but it's just there's ah like my 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 passion for it is so strong but my ability to talk about it in a succinct way in only a few weeks is so weak um so uh just just know that's where we're at now and this week we're diving into the next section of theology of the body of man when we created them namely in the appeal to the resurrection um so this is a new shift uh, from Pope, John, uh, Pope St. John Paul II to a new text of Matthew, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so we just are wrapping up from last week uh, our final analysis of Jesus' appeal to the heart, right? Namely, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where it says anyone who looks at a woman in a reductive way with lust has already committed adultery in his heart, right? So we have the appeal to the beginning, we have appeal to the heart, and now we're going to appeal to the resurrection. So there's like three appeals of Christ. Um, and it's super important for us to recognize that the truth of the resurrection is like Catholic dogma. Like it's in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, before we get too much into that, we have a Greek word of the day. Because I almost totally forgot to say it. But now I'm remembering. So we're going to say it. So our Greek word of the day is eschatos right? Or eschaton, um, eschatos. And so eschatos is just Greek for last, right? So eschatology, which is a term we use in theology sometimes, is the study of the last things. So this is going to be a really, really important term uh, that JP2 is going to bring about a lot in this, in this next section. So eschatology is tricky for a few different reasons. Um, one of them being, I'm not going to list all of them. It's not going to be an exhaustive li list of why it's tricky. Uh, but, you know, a few of them, is, you know, the first being that in talking about the last things, we are talking about things that no one has ever seen that still lives, right? So we aren't really working from experience at this point. We are working purely from revelation through what is revealed to us through scripture. Um, and we are kind of working backwards from the text, right? We aren't, like, nobody's ever seen heaven, right? Uh, and that's currently living to write about it kind of thing. 
Um, nobody's ever seen what it's going to look like or feel like or, you know, or with, when the end of the world's going to be. We don't, we don't, we just don't know these things, right? So it's tricky that way. Another reason it's tricky is even the texts we have within the New Testament and the Old Testament, sometimes they're, they're apocalyptic literature, right? So there's a genre, the apocalyptic genre, um, namely the genre of things revealed. Uh, it can be really kind of, you know, not even abstract. It's not the right word, but it's, it's, it's apocalyptic language. What I mean by that, it's, it's metaphor, it's, it's analogy, it's, it's symbolic language. It, it's, it's not, and the, the biblical writers aren't trying to be precise in their descriptions of what they're seeing. They are using human language, which far uh, underperforms in its ability to describe things of heaven, right? Or even of hell. Um, and so eschatology is to study the last things for what's revealed through scripture and tradition. And so this is going to be a really important topic in this next section, namely Christ's appeal to the resurrection. And so Pope St. John Paul II starts with this story of Jesus' interaction with the, uh, with the Sadducees, which we're, let's dive into now. So this story uh, appears in uh, Mark 12, Matthew 22, and Luke 20. Um, so really important to know that these three stories, it's the same story told to the three, three different authors, and they're, they're not exactly the same. So if you actually read you know, Mark 12, Matthew 22, and Luke 20, there's, you're going to notice differences, right? And so some people, some historical critical scholars, will say, ha, look, they're different. It's not the same. Therefore, none of them are accurate. It's all just, you know, oral tradition that we can't trust, yada, yada, yada. Um, and we'll say, hey, bro, calm down. Like, chill. First off, uh, the fact that three different authors are quoting the same story actually gives evidence to the fact that Jesus probably did tell the story. Did certain authors maybe redact this story in a certain way for their audience? Maybe. Um, could Jesus have also have told this story several times to several different groups of Sadducees and therefore had different kind of nuances each time? Also a possibility. Either way, we're not going to dive into the arguments for redactive criticism, right? Um, but just know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see the same stories quite often. You'll see the same passages or the same sermons quite often. Um, and so there's different theories on like why that is or like why aren't they exactly the same. Uh, and one really popular theory that I, I'm kind of on the fence about is this idea of the Q source. Uh, and for those who are listening, you're like, Chase, what the junk are you talking about? Well, so you have this idea amongst historical critical scholars that out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke pulled from Mark in what's called the Q document. So essentially the reason they think Mark is the oldest is because one is the shortest, which is kind of not the best argument, but whatever. Um, and it's, it's also just the language of it is also, um, it's very blunt, you know, immediately, immediately, immediately right into his Roman audience, right? Um, and so they argue that Mark is the first one. It's the shortest one. It's the most concise one. It's the oldest one. And yet there's this mysterious Q document, which there is literally no historical evidence of, Right. There is literally not one scrap of papyrus, not one scrap of writing, nothing, right? This Q document is something that literally historical critical uh, scholars invented to fit this theory. 
where it's as, essentially this Q document is a, is, a, is a document listing all of Jesus's teachings, right? Writing them all out. Um, now the argument can be made that the Q document isn't a document, but rather this oral tradition of Jesus's teaching, but that's that they're just also trying to work too hard around this Q document. But anyway, this theory is that Mark came first as a Q document and Matthew and Luke having access to the gospel of Mark and this Q document pulled from these two sources in order to compose their gospels. And so why is this relevant in, in reading the, the New Testament? Well, in reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just know that a lot of the content's the same, not all of it's the same, but even the content that is the same, there's going to be slight differences, right? Like I said, it could be that Jesus told the story multiple different times to multiple audiences. It could be that the author's slightly uh, redacted or edited what he said in order to appeal to their audience. It doesn't mean the scripture is invalid. It doesn't mean it's not infallible. Uh, it just means that they knew truly the teaching, the heart of Jesus' teaching, and made sure to present it in such a way so that their audience could benefit from, from it the most. Okay, with that being said, sorry, random tangent, biblical theology, but hey, that's why we listen to this podcast for biblical theology. If you want to look more about the Q document and all that kind of hypothesis, read Ratzinger. He's the man. Talked about it sometimes. All right, cool. So uh, we're going to dive into uh, Matthew 22, uh, starting at verse 24. So we read this story. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children left, his wife, he left his wife to his brother. So, so too, the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died, and the resurrection, therefore, to which of the seven will she be wife? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the law that these Sadducees are quoting is uh, the Leverite law of Deuteronomy 25.5. So just as reference, we, we hear this in uh, Deuteronomy. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform all the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his brother who is dead, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And he shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him that had his sandal pulled off. Okay, so... Yeah, having a sandal pulled off, having 
an unshod foot. It's just, it's like an insult. It's an old school insult. I'm going to pull off your sandal. It's like a mark of perpetual shame. Um, and so it's this idea that if a man has no sons, his, his family name couldn't be perpetuated, right? So if, and this law only, only applies if the man's brother live in the same house, right? So if a man has a brother and he's, he gets, his brother gets married and moves off to some other land or whatever, uh, that brother who is already married and lives in another land isn't obligated to take on the brother's wife. Um, but if brothers share the home, then the brother is obligated to. Okay, so this is the law, the Leverite law, that the Sadducees are quoting to Jesus, right? And so there's a lot that Jesus kind of lays out here. The first thing we want to talk about is, and that JP2 talks about, is that the Sadducees are posing this as a hypothetical scenario, right? Because we have to remember, it says right here, that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? Uh, one nuance that we have to understand too that JP2 points out in his footnotes, because um, read the footnotes, like I said. Anyway, is that the, <laughs> the Sadducees um, are one sect of Israel, um, and at the time, Judaism as a whole proper didn't have like a dogmatic teaching on the resurrection. Um, you know, another thing to point out too, JPT points this out, is that in the, in the Old and New Testament and scripture, we're not going to hear the term resurrection of the body or of the flesh, right? We're going to hear the term resurrection of the dead. Why is that? Well, it, part of it's just uh, language, namely that when, when in scripture we, we hear the resurrection of, of the dead, um, it's, it's applying that it's the whole man, right? So flesh is implied, but it's, it's later on in Catholic tradition that the, the terminology in the creeds of resurrection of the flesh, resurrection of the dead, resurrection of the body, it's because it's to, it's to overemphasize the point that it's not just your soul that will live forever, this platonic idea, but rather it's, it's your very self, it's body and soul that will live forever. So, you know, Jesus he lays this out in response to the Sadducees who claim there's no resurrection. And the first thing he says is, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. That's a, two, that's a double-sided insult, right? He's insulting them as people who claim to know the Bible. And he's also insulting their ability to interpret the Bible, right? So not only is he saying, you don't, you don't know your left from your right hand. You don't even know what, what you know, color your hand is kind of thing, right? Um, I don't, that's a really weird analogy, but I said it anyway, whatever. Um, he, it's an insult, right? He's saying he doesn't, they don't know the scripture and they don't even know what it means, right? And he actually quotes um, this, up the, the, from, sorry, Exodus, when God appears to Moses and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which the Sadducees believing only in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Torah, they, they would have known that, right? And so, namely, that God, so Jesus is saying there has to be eternal life because God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I currently am. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living only, right? So he's, he's, he's kind of Jesus pairing swords with the Sadducees. And a lot of the times, Jesus will just ask a question back, which he kind of does here. But this is a time he kind of just puts his foot down and says, you guys are idiots. Here's the actual answer. Um, and so we get in this idea of, of the resurrection and this idea of it's a, it's a new mode of being. And, and, and the, Jesus' initial answer to this is that there, there is no marriage in heaven. 
And this, I think, is a, is a tough truth for a lot of Catholics, um, especially a lot of married Catholics, right? I mean, we, all, we always say to our spouse, you know, I love you forever, I love you forever, I love you forever. And you will, like, hopefully love them forever. You'll still love them in heaven, but we have to remember the point of the sacraments, right? And literally the last section of Theology of the Body, JP2 is going to talk about marriage as sacrament, and sacraments in general. Um, but what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a, for layman's terms, it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. Namely, it's something given to us on earth that has efficacious grace, the grace insofar as it is a thing, uh, in order to lead you to heaven, right? Um, and so for another like extreme example, there is no Eucharist in heaven, right? There, there is no, like you won't see a tabernacle in heaven. You won't see the Eucharist in heaven because it's not needed we will be eternally united with God. So in the sacrament of marriage, we're going to get into later on, it's a sacrament. It's a sign with efficacious grace. Namely, when a man and woman come together, they, in their unitive act, they become a representative, not representative, they represent in a physical, tangible way the love of the Trinity, right? And so insofar, and then doing that, they are filled with grace in order to love and to, to be a total gift of self to their spouse for the sanctification of their spouse, but also the procreation of children uh, to literally cooperate in the making of other, other Christians, right? Um, and so a sacrament, there is no sacraments in heaven. There's no need for you to reproduce or to come together in this unitive way in heaven. Why? Well, because you're in heaven and you're totally filled up and you're totally united to God, right? Um, you know, people ask, like, is there going to be, like, sex in heaven? And the answer is no. There's not, you're not going to have sex in heaven. You won't, you won't even want to. That's the thing that we don't understand. You won't even have a desire for it, which I think for a lot of married couples, you're like, what do you mean I won't have a desire for it? You, like, you literally won't have a desire for it. You'll be totally, totally captivated because you are going to see God as he is. You're going to see God face to face. And so you're not even going to desire it. There's not going to be a need for the sacrament of marriage in heaven because the purpose of the sacrament of marriage is to get you to heaven. That's the point of all vocations is to get you to heaven. And so once you're there, you don't need the thing that helps you get there, right? It's like a treasure. It's you know another weird analogy, a treasure map, right? It Once you find the treasure and you have it in your pocket, you don't need the treasure map anymore unless maybe to find your way out. But if you're trying to find your way out of heaven, that's problematic. You probably don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's you don't need the the visible sign of the invisible reality because you are currently, and once you're in heaven, you are fully living in the now visible reality. So it's, but it's not merely just, the resurrection is not merely just your soul being like awake after you die. No, it's a new mode of existence. And it's not merely just like your current body gets like woken up one day. No, it's like you're, it's in a new mode of existence. So, you know, uh, Pope St. John Paul II, he quotes theology of the body and he makes this really interesting connection. You know, he's like Pope, James, Pope St. John Paul II talking about Aquinas says, you know, Aquinas had to choose between Plato's idea of a soul and Aristotle's. He, I mean, really he did in his study. You had to choose between these two extremes, the platonic idea of soul trapped in body trying to escape or Aristotle's idea of matter and form making the substance of a thing, right? And so there's gonna be some technical language here, which I'll, I'll break down, but it's a, I think it's a cool quote. And if I start reading it and you're like, Chase, you lost me. Well, I'll explain it. Give me a second. So read this in, in the Summa. 
The soul, however, has one mode of being when it is united to the body and another when it is separated from the body, while the nature of the soul remains the same, not in such a way that being united to the body is accidental to it, but by reason of its nature, it is united to the body. So what, pausing real quick, what is that saying? So the soul, properly speaking, the nature of the soul is to be united to the body, right? Has, that's, that's its proper mode of existing, right? Yet after we die and the soul leaves the body, it only leaves the body and exists still by a supernatural grace, right? Because it's a, it, that has to be a different mode of existence. Why? Because the soul is the form, is the form of the body, right? It's, it's meant to be with the body. And the fact that the soul exists apart from the body in heaven is literally only possible through supernatural grace. So, uh, and when it's talking about accident, uh, so not in such a way of being united to the body is accidental to it. So it's like, oh, it's just like, it's not, the being in the body is not necessary for the soul, but it's something that is unnecessary, namely an accident. It's not what he's saying. It's, it's not an accident. It's essential. So continue. If this, that is, being able to know only through the sensible phantasms, uh, don't need to get into that right now. Anyway. If this is not from the nature of the soul, but belongs to it accidentally from the fact that it is tied to a body as the Platonist held, the soul would return to its nature after the removal of the imp impediment consisting of the body. But, according to this view, the soul would not be united to the body for the greater good of the soul, but this would only be for the greater good of the body, which is irrational, since matter is for the sake of form and not the other way around. It belongs to the soul according to itself to be united with a body. The human soul remains in its existence when it is separated from the body, having a natural fitness and inclination for union with the body. Uh, so uh, if you're like, Chase, I don't know what you just read. Um, Aquinas is tricky. But anyway, essentially the reason Pope St. Paul II points this out it's because we're talking about eschatology. We're talking about the last things. We're talking about the, the mode of existence after you die, right? And at the end of time. And so this resurrection of the body happens at the end of time. Yet there's a, there's a time, if you will, between when you die and the end of time. Um, and so there, there, there you have three modes of existence, really. Your first is, is your current mode of existence, listening to this podcast, namely a fully human hopefully baptized, matter and form, namely body and soul as a composite of human being. After you die, your soul, the form of the body, leaves the body and is united with Christ in heaven. And that is a different mode of existence than you were currently living in because you don't have a body, right? But at the end of time, our bodies will be resurrected and you not reunited with our soul, but in a new super amazing transubstantial way, right? It's like, it's, it, it's something we, we, we don't really know about yet because it hasn't happened, um, but it's this eschatological man that we're now diving into. This man, not from the beginning, not before the fall, not even right after the fall, but rather the eschatological man that we're now looking at. So this is what Pope St. John Paul II calls it, and a lot of people, a lot of theologians call divinization. And so we have like four minutes to talk about this. So I'm going to just super, you know, break this down. So anyway, divinization, deification, Christ, Christification, whatever you want to call it, is this idea, it's an ancient idea, namely that in order to 
enter into heaven, you have to share in the divine nature of the Trinity in some mysterious way. Um, and so, and I think I've talked about this in the podcast before. If I have, cool. If not, I'm talking about talking about it again. But anyway, St. Thomas Aquinas says, God became man in order that man become God. Not that we become God in like big G sense, um, but rather we participate in the divine nature in some mysterious way. And one way you can think about this is that God has a divine nature. His essence is divine. We have a human nature, which is infinitely, infinitely different than the divine nature. And so heaven, what is heaven? It's participation in the union of the Trinity. But this Trinity is, is a divine nature, right? One nature, the divine nature. And so as human beings, we cannot get there by our own means. We can't get there naturally because naturally we have a human nature, not a divine nature. And so what, what happens with Christ then? Well, the second person of the Trinity who has the divine nature totally in his possession partakes on, uh, takes on flesh, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he takes on a human nature, right? But he's not a human person. It's actually heresy to say Jesus is a human person. He was rather a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, with a human nature. So he has two natures, one person, fully divine, fully human, not a mixture, not a confusion of the two. Um, there's a really funny YouTube video. I think it's called Lutheran Satire on, uh, on this. So look at Lutheran Satire. And you'll see a couple Irish dudes. Ah, oh, I feel like it. Anyway, it's one with St. Patrick. It's funny. But uh, it's, not, it's about the Trinity. Anyway, and so through our baptism, we are united with Christ in his human nature because that's, that's our common denominator with Christ is our human nature. And so after Christ's ascension into heaven, he's, he is in heaven, body, blood, soul, and divinity, um, and so even his human nature, right? So Christ has his cross bridge the infinite gap, right? So we enter into the blessed union of the Trinity through the humanity of Jesus Christ through our baptism, right? This is divinization in like a nutshell. I probably said some heresy in there. I didn't mean to. If I didn't, you're listening to this, you're like, Chase, that said that wrong. I'm sorry. Um, but it this is eschatology, right? This is study of the last things. And this is the study of soteriology too, soter, salvation. Um, and so this idea that at the end of time, through the power of Christ's resurrection, our bodies will be resurrected. Even the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about this. And it, people ask, well, how is the resurrection possible? And the church answers, it's possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then last thing we'll talk about is this eschatological experience. And I'm going to quote directly from Theology of the Body here in the... Oh, audience 67, number five. We read this. This eschatological experience of the living God will not only concentrate in itself all of man's spiritual energies, but at the same time reveal to him in a living and experiential way this self-communication of God to everything created and in particular to man. That is God's most personal self-giving in his very divinity to man, to that being who has from the beginning borne his image and likeness within himself. Thus, in the other world, the eschatological world, the object of vision will be that mystery hidden from eternity in the Father, a mystery that has in time been revealed in Christ to be fulfilled unceasingly by the work of the Holy Spirit. That mystery will become, if one may express it in this way, the content of eschatological experience and the form of human existence 
as a whole in as a whole in the dimension of the other world. Eternal life should be understood in an eschatological sense. That is, in the full and perfect experience of the grace of God in which man can share through faith during his earthly life and which, by contrast, will not only be revealed to those who will participate in the other world in all its penetrating depth, but will also be experienced in its beatifying reality. Uh, so we're basically out of time. The last thing I'll say, what he just said is that this amazing eschatological experience, this grace that God's perfect self-donation to us, we can now live on earth through grace, through faith. With that, we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless y'all. All right, y'all. So that was a crazy short condensed podcast. It was actually 30 minutes. It just felt short because I couldn't really talk about everything I wanted to talk about. But we'll talk about more next time on Catholics with Bibles. As always, make sure to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast so you get notified when we release new episodes. And as always, talk about us with your friends, with your family. Help us to get out to more people to teach about God's word through an authentically Catholic lens. Until next time, y'all. God bless.